Hello, my name is Tim Krell, and I will be reading scripture with you this morning, taken from Hebrews 5, the New American Standard Version. And please feel free to follow along on the screens or using the bulletin insert or whatever other means you would like. Hebrews chapter 5. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God, in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, since he himself is beset with weakness. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins as for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest. But he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Just as he says also in another passage, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Concerning him, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk, not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, My name is Peter, and I am one of the pastors here And today, we are in the middle of a series through the book of Hebrews we are calling Witness in Christ and in Culture. And the basic thrust and challenge of this series is to say, let us figure out how to bring our firsthand accounts of our experience with Jesus into the culture. Not just speak of hearsay or theories or what we know just informationally in our head, but our very own experience of Jesus in our life. And then let's bring that firsthand account into the culture. And today, uh, the title of the talk is Tears, uh, referencing the tears that Jesus shed that Tim read for us. Uh, What I want to show you in Hebrews 5 is how the most formative way the most formative way that we experience the presence of God in our lives is through what we are going to call suffering. I don't know if you initially believe that to be true, 
Uh, that's what the chapter teaches us. And there's lots of verses in this chapter, actually, that people take out of the chapter and quote and use. But it's really helpful to understand that the context of those verses is actually suffering. And when we go through suffering, it is when God invites us to experience his presence. And I want to say that there is no greater way that we experience the presence of God shaping us as when we go through suffering. Uh, In preparation for this talk, I was thinking about my own life, and I realized my life sort of consists of two seasons of suffering. The first season is suffering just sort of happening to me. I'm sort of blindsided by it. I'm sort of fresh, uh, literally fresh into this world, and bad stuff just happens. And I participate in it. I experience it. Uh, And then uh, there was this sort of season of just wanting to heal from the initial round of suffering, if you will, and just this desire for peace and healing. And uh, that's just me saying, God, I need to get to zero because I've just been sort of brought into negative. And then the second round of suffering is what God uses now uh, to uh, build Character That's God taking me from zero to 10. So there's minus 10 to zero and then zero to 10. And so I want us to uh, talk about suffering today and not in sort of a heavy way, talking about the specifics of uh, hard situations, but just the uh, idea of suffering and how we are to think about it philosophically. So I have two points for us today. One, principles pertaining to suffering. Okay, and we'll talk about three principles that pertain to suffering. And then two, application of the same. Okay? So first, the principles pertaining to suffering. The first principle is found in verse 8 and 9. It says this, although he, this is referring to Jesus, although he was a son He learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, and verse 9 goes on. And here is our first principle. Suffering is the key catalyst for growth, bar none, given the reality of our fallen state. Now, that's a statement. I want you to think about that. Is this true? Can you think in your own experience, your firsthand life, of a category that has caused greater growth in your life than suffering? I have to testify that in my life, this is true. That I can think of no greater category of anything that has caused more growth for me, than when I'm experiencing pain and inconvenience and suffering. I uh, happened upon an article that talked about a book called Living with a Seal by a man named Jesse Itzler. And uh, I guess he's sort of a big deal. I've never heard of him before, but he is an entrepreneur. He uh, just sold Marquee Jet to Berkshire Hathaway, uh, making him very rich. He founded 
uh, Zico coconut water, which some of us know from our trips to Costco. Uh, he sold it to Coca-Cola, and he's also himself a uh, uh, fitness nut. He uh, has completed an extreme distance run, a 100-mile race. He's married to a woman named Sarah Blakely, the billionaire, founder of Spanx. And some of you women know what that is. One of you guys know what that is. Um, but what he did was, at some event, he met this guy. And just, just like that, he noted something different about this guy. And so he said, what's the deal with you? And found out that this guy that he uh, took notice of is a Navy SEAL. And he said, you know, whatever that Navy SEAL has, I want to learn from him. And so invited this Navy SEAL to come live with him for 31 days. And then uh, he paid the Navy SEAL to train him and to teach him about the way of the SEAL. And so he learned a ton, and he wrote this book called um, uh, Living with a SEAL, 31 Days of Training with the Toughest Man on the Planet. And the book is basically... Eight principles that pertain to uh, embracing and understanding the place of suffering and pain. That's what the Navy SEALs' life philosophies all revolve around, this idea of suffering. In fact, four of the eight principles that the book is about explicitly relate to how to relate to suffering. I'll give you a couple of examples. For example, uh, the author... Uh, Jesse says things like, you know, this seal, he's just randomly just dropping gold nuggets all the time, just dribbling out of his mouth. He says things like, when your brain tells you you are 100% done, you're actually about 40% there. I'm like, is that true? He says things like, uh, forget about comfort. Who told you you're supposed to be comfortable? Who told you that myth? Who told you that lie? Life isn't about comfort. He says other basic things like be patient. Just wait. Just stop angsting. Just wait. Be patient. And he says other things like whatever the situation, whether it's a work thing or a job thing or a moment thing, in that moment, seek the challenge out. Find out what's hard in that moment and tackle it, pursue it, embrace it. Now, I read this article. I didn't read the book. I read the article and I thought, who cares? This is just some Navy SEAL and his life philosophy. How does that pertain to me? But then as I thought about these eight principles and I read it again and again and again, I realized they resonate as true for me that I cannot think of a single area in my life or in my personality where I've experienced growth or improvement without going through something hard. Now, I thought about this with my running. Susie and I just signed up for the Mercer Island Half again. That'll be our fourth time running that race. It is a hard race. There's There are lots of feet of elevation. I think it was either 1,200 or 2,000 feet of elevation in just 13 miles. It's a really difficult race. But training for that begins in two weeks for me. And I think it's going to be raining. It's going to be cold. I'm going to be tired and hungry. And nine out of ten times, I'm not going to want to run. 
But I've learned from years of marathon training that if I am willing to embrace the pain, embrace the discomfort and the suffering, then on the other side of that, there is gold. There is something good, something rewarding, something transformative. I thought about relationships. I thought about my work career and pathway. I thought about my friendships and all the difficulties that my friends are having. And I have to agree with the seal. One of the key lessons in life is to come to terms with the fact of suffering. That suffering happens. And you're no longer upset by it. You're not surprised by it. You're not thrown off by it. But then he invites us to take it one step further and say, don't just mentally accept that suffering will happen, but learn to make friends with it. When suffering is upon you, say, hello, friend. I'm looking forward to spending some quality time with you, and I'm going to kick your butt. Learn to cooperate with suffering. Even Jesus himself Scriptures say he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And through the suffering, he was made perfect. And this word perfect is the Greek word uh, for complete or mature or whole. There is some God-given image of Christ in you. And it is through suffering that you are going to experience the revelation of that image of Christ in you. You're going to be made complete or whole through suffering. That's principle number one. Suffering is the key catalyst for growth, bar none, given our fallen state. Now, that's a basic statement. But the challenge for you is, do you believe it? Do you know this to be true? Second principle found in verse 4, 7, and 10. I sort of smushed it together for us. says this. And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God. He offered up, this is now speaking to Jesus, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. Being, verse 10, being designated by God. That's speaking of Christ again. And here is the principle. Trust in a God of truth, love, and power is the single most helpful worldview with regard to suffering well. It's a loaded sentence. Let me unpack it for you through my favorite place to eat on the planet, okay? Uh, There's this place called Defara Pizza on Avenue J in Brooklyn, New York. If I were to die tonight and the good Lord said to me, Peter, you got one meal left. Where Where do you want me to zap you to? I pick Avenue J in Brooklyn, New York, Defara's Pizza, There's this um, man named Dom. He started the restaurant, and uh, he's been there forever. 
In fact, he is such an artist and tyrant about it that nobody else touches the pizza. It's just him. And he's been making pizza for so long. His oven is 780 degrees. I know this because I asked him. Okay, it's 780 degrees. He doesn't use a single tool, just his bare hands to handle the pizza. It's amazing to see him in action. In fact, he's been so long hunched over his counter making pizza, his back is permanently hunched over in the exact perfect angle required to make the best pizza on the planet. Now, I want to show you. This April, when I was in New York doing my sister's wedding, I visited uh, Dom at Defara's, and I took a a secret video of the place. I want to show you uh, a video of this place. There we go. That's Dom, hunched over, making dough. And he walks it out. See, nobody else handles the dough except him. And that's the crazy chaos over there in New York. Dogs are not allowed in there. doesn't matter. They're in there. Now, you get a slight sense of this place, but how does it pertain to the point Peter's trying to make? Now, the thing about the Faras is, because he's the uh, one that handles the pizza, and a lot of times he's alone with maybe one helper in the back, but they're not allowed to touch the important stuff. Only Dom's allowed to do that. So here Dom is in the front, taking orders from customers, making the pizza, cutting the basil leaves, pouring the olive oil, checking on the pizza, walking to the back, making more dough, bringing the dough, cutting up ingredients. This is Dom handling probably hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people each day. And because of that, when you arrive on the scene, there are just dozens of people that are blocking the entranceway to this restaurant. And you have no idea where you're supposed to stand and who you're supposed to talk to. You don't know if you're supposed to pay here or there. You don't know where the pizza comes out from. You don't know who's going to take your order if somebody's cutting the line because there is no line. Just one big mob of people. Your anxiety level suddenly starts to rise. And you're trying to remain civil, but you know that you're in for hours of chaos for this pizza. And you want to make the best of it. And it, start to feel, it starts to feel very chaotic and very unsafe. And the question running through your mind, even as you love this pizza, is, does anybody care about my experience here? Is there somebody in charge overseeing the Defara experience? And the answer is no. You have to fend for yourself. It's every man for himself. Right? And you're trying to do this all in polite society. This is exactly what it's like with suffering. Notice one of the key things to note is that a high priest, he deals with sin and the people's sin and his own sin, but he doesn't take the honor to himself, but he receives it as a call by God. And the same is true of God, that God himself called Christ to mediate suffering in our world. And then when Jesus is dealing with the reality uh, and of pain and suffering in our world, he cries tears, loud crying to the air, 
to nobody in particular. No, to the one able to save him from death. And so here is the fact or principle about suffering. In our world, when bad things happen, it leads naturally to worse things happening. Right now in this room, do you know we have three leaks? We have a bucket there and a bucket here and another one somewhere uh, out there. And if we don't tend to these leaks, we're going to have a fourth and a fifth. And then the wood is going to begin to rot and the whole building is going to come apart. Because in our world, chaos leads to further chaos. Evil leads to greater evil. There is no guarantee that good things come out of bad. Nobody guarantees that. In fact, scientifically, we know from the second law of thermodynamics that things tend towards chaos. Good things do not automatically come from the bad. There isn't a reason for everything. But there is a God behind everything. This is the trust part. You cannot endure suffering well unless somebody is in charge. There has to be somebody who understands truth, who is committed to fairness and justice and righteousness. There has to be somebody who not only cares about justice, but cares about you. This someone has to be loving They have to see you. They have to be concerned about you. They have to be intimately acquainted with your plight. And on top of all of that, they have to actually have the power to do something about it. They are somebody who is filled with truth, love, and power. And unless you have somebody in charge like that beyond the immediate experience of suffering, you cannot suffer well. Good comes out of bad because there is a good God behind the scenes. When suffering is upon you, things aren't just spinning out of control, but there's a central force holding the world together. There is somebody who has a vision. There is somebody who is committed to justice. There is somebody who is working good things in you personally and in the world. And unless you believe this, I don't know how you suffer well. And this is the challenge if you're sitting here and maybe you're a bit agnostic or you're an atheist or you struggle with believing in a good God. Fine. Reject that God, but what God will you trust in then when you are experiencing your brand of suffering and pain? Do not believe the smiles and the shiny faces next to you. People are going through stuff. I was, uh, my wife and I were having dinner with uh, a couple this week. And uh, uh, one of them shared how they just, uh, just a week before, uh, lost their very last parent. Has anybody had this experience of losing the la- their last parent? You know, your whole world shifts. Even if you weren't uh, talking to them very much, even if they weren't in your daily life, somehow 
in the deep recesses of your being, you knew you had somebody who called you son or daughter. You had somebody who saw you as a child, somebody who loved you more than you loved yourself. And then to lose that last parent, your whole world sort of flips because now you're the bottom line. There's nobody else to escalate it to. You're it. You're, the, you're, the, you're where the buck stops. That's a terrifying experience. Small taste of what it's like if you don't have a God of truth, love, and power that you can look to. Who cares about your experience unless God cares about your experience? And this is a challenge for you. Who will you trust? Good does not just happen. Somebody is injecting their will and their energy and their presence and their vision and concern into the system. And this is the beauty of the Christian message, that somebody said, I will fix this. I have a plan from the foundations of the world. And the plan is for me to send my son to address the need of humanity. This world is fallen. And I'm going to send him and he's going to die on behalf of a suffering world. And it's through the cross of Christ that we experience the goodness and the love of God. And if you don't believe in Christ, then who do you believe in? Because you need to believe in someone or something. Somebody has to care about you. Somebody has to be in charge. Uh, There's another resource. The uh, article is up there, and I've talked about this before, and I think it's uh, apropos here. Uh, Article in Science News from a few years back. It says this. uh, There's this famous marshmallow and children experiment where they sat little kids around a table of marshmallows. Some of you may have heard this. If you go on YouTube and you type in marshmallow kids, you can watch the entire video of kids sitting around the table of marshmallows. And the experimenters came in and sat the children down around these marshmallows. And the experimenter said, "Uh, if you don't eat the marshmallows right now, When I come back, I will give you even more marshmallows, and you can have marshmallows. And then the experimenter left the room and turned on the video camera. And uh, some of the kids are fidgeting. Some of the kids just are trying not to eat it. And some kids just grab it and start stuffing their faces with marshmallows. And there's analysis been done about this experiment. And the first round of analysis uh, concluded that the key to succeeding in life is your ability to exercise willpower. They called it delaying gratification. And that's where the term delaying gratification became popularized. And so the reason they know this is they traced the lives of these kids and they found out that the kids who were able to refrain from touching or eating the marshmallows Tended to, tended to do better in life than the kids who weren't able to exercise their will and refrain from eating the marshmallows. So that was their first and only conclusion. It's all about delaying gratification. So that passed on uh, into popular society, and we talked a lot about delaying gratification. 
And then another set of researchers said, you know, that can't be all there is to learn from this study. And they conducted a second round of analysis. And what they realized is that the kids who were able to refrain from eating the marshmallows, the way they refrained was not by exercising sheer willpower, but they were able to find distractions. So instead of staring at the marshmallows and trying not to eat the marshmallows, they started staring at their feet. They started playing games with their fingers. They started bothering their neighbors, poking them around. And so they were able to not look at the marshmallows. And what they concluded was, you know, the key isn't just sheer willpower. The way you delay gratification is not through the exercise of the will only, but it's by exercising good, what they call executive functioning. They made the executive decision to look away from the marshmallows, and through distraction, they were able to refrain from eating the marshmallows. Pretty uh, deep, another level in. And then most recently, they did another third and final round of analysis of the videos, and here's what they discovered. Not only did they... uh, observe the kids in action, not only that they follow them on into adulthood and uh, study how their lives turned out, but they also now went backwards into their families of origin. And here's what they learned, that the kids who are able to exercise willpower and delay gratification, the kids who are able to distract themselves by practicing good executive functioning from their frontal cortex, as it were, They were able to do so. They were set up to do so because these kids, those kids who are successful, came from more stable families of origin. In other words, what the article says is they had authority figures whom they already learned to trust. So when another set of authority figures, the experimenters, came in and made the promise, if you don't eat the marshmallows, I will give you more. Those kids were set up to believe those words because they already believed that authority was reliable, that authority was good. And the kids who were not able to practice willpower or distract themselves, they came from a worldview of, if I don't eat this now, I'm going to get nothing later. Authority figures say things all the time. Promises are just words, but really they're never fulfilled. So I have to take what I can get now. A scarcity mentality, short-term thinking, unable to go through suffering because nobody good was in charge. If you cry, If you have prayers and supplications, if you have tears to shed, to whom will you shed your tears? To whom will you cry out? If you have no one to offer up prayers, then will you be able to go through suffering? Will you be able to experience the joy that's ahead on the other side of suffering? That's the second principle. The third principle is found in verse 9. It says this, 
And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. The principle based on this verse is this. Finishing well through suffering requires character beyond competence or charisma. Let me unpack this for us. How many of you know this? That finishing is much harder than starting. It's true. It's much easier to start. In fact, you could have zero marathon training and you can run the fastest first half mile of any marathon or ever. But are you going to finish? What does it take to go all the way to the end? You have to understand that if you're going to go through the pain of a full marathon and break through all of the cramps and the uh, blisters and whatever else is happening in your brain and body, whatever emotions are coming up for you, however much you want to quit, however disillusioned and cynical you become in the middle of the race, you know somewhere because of your training that this marathon will end. That there is joy on the other side of the finish line because there is a finish line. So this is the third principle. That your focus is on the finish. Not the start, not the middle, but on the finish. That there is joy there. In fact, the book of Hebrews, talking about the sufferings of Christ later on in the teen chapters, says this, that Jesus despised the shame of the cross because of the joy that was set before him. He saw through the cross, beyond the cross, onto the joy. And unless you know there is joy, you can't go through to the end. You have to understand that how you start almost doesn't matter because when you're going through something, When you're starting, you can just employ your competence or your charisma. You can do that. You can fool some of the people. You can fool maybe all of the people in the beginning. You can put on a good show. You can sort of just be that person who's extremely competent, who works really hard, who forgives everything, who laughs at every bad joke. You can do that. You can be that likable, winsome, hardworking loving, others-focused person for a couple of minutes. You can maybe even do that for a decade or two. But if you don't have character on the inside, eventually, if you're going to finish, if you're going to run the whole race, there is a time when character is called upon. And as you approach the finish line, the stuff that you are made of, beyond tools and technique and knowledge, begin to come to the surface. And you and the rest of the world will see all together what you are made of. All your goods and all your gods on display for the world to see. And we know this is true. There are beloved Actors and politicians and pastors who seem like the idealized versions of humanity 
And then later on, as they approach the finish line, they don't finish so well. And the whole of their earlier life gets reinterpreted through the lens of how they finish. It doesn't matter what kind of marriage you had, years 1 through 39. Whatever is happening at year 40 casts a shadow or light on the whole marriage. It doesn't matter what kind of career you've had as a beloved actor. What comes to the surface at the end casts a shadow or light. Suffering is an invitation for you to employ your character beyond your competence or charisma. And only suffering can give you the character you need to finish well. The suffering will end. And you can get through it. Now, these are the three principles. Let's apply these three principles. The first one comes from uh, uh, Jesus' own practice of these principles. The first one is to pray. We read here in Hebrews that Jesus prayed. There's many accounts of Jesus praying in the Gospels. Why do we pray? Number one, according to the principles, we pray to normalize and utilize suffering, pain, and discomfort. Two, we pray to entrust ourselves over to God in the midst of suffering. And third, we pray to gain perspective that it is a means and will therefore come to an end. It's true. All suffering will come to an end. It will not go on forever. Small or big, deep or shallow, it will come to an end. I don't know what it is about suffering, but I feel like for me, I don't remember to pray at least until halftime. For the first half, I'm just sort of surprised by it. Like, I didn't expect suffering to happen. Why wouldn't I expect it to happen? It's been happening my whole life. And yet it seems like each and every time there's a naivete that somehow took hold of me and I didn't expect suffering to happen. I didn't expect the curve body expected to go sideways. Why not? It happens every time. There's always some complication. Has anybody in this room ever, ever, undertaken a remodel project and have it go exactly as you planned? Has anybody lived in a house where nothing has ever gone wrong? Has anybody been in a relationship where there was absolute, deep, loving intimacy without any conflict ever? Just high trust and love, and that's it. Has anybody been to a perfect church? Has anybody had a perfect boss? And yet, we are so surprised each and every time. And so I'm like that, and I forget to pray. And it's about, by the time I kind of sort of shake myself out of it and go, hold on, what's happening here? I can't handle this on my own. I need to pray. I need to seek God on this. I do. I need God. And it's already halfway through. So the first application is to 
pray. The second application is to pick. Pick one thing that you will commit to suffering through. It can be a, a physical thing, or it can like an exercise thing. It can be a relational conflict or something. It can be a money issue. It can be some issue that you're avoiding for whatever reason. But pick one thing and say, I want to experience the full, uh, full ride of being hit by suffering and then going through it and coming out on the other side a better person. And do that. Verse 12 to 14 says this. For though by this time you ought to be teachers... You have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Now, in uh, uh, hermeneutics or biblical interpretation, what we say is context is king. So this whole chapter from beginning to the end is about suffering. So when you read verse uh, 13 and 14 about how some people are mature and some are infants and some can take only milk and some are able to uh, eat solid food, what is the writer of Hebrews talking about? He's talking about suffering. Because that's what the whole chapter is about. And when he says in verse 14, because of practice, have their senses trained, what is he talking about? He's talking about suffering. He is saying, if you have not learned how to go through suffering well, you're an infant. Solid food comes to the mature by way of suffering. It's not some theologically savvy person who understands how Jesus is going to come back, who are studying all these esoteric pieces of theology, and now, wow, this person is mature because they know theology or they know their Bible. Nope. It's not knowledge. It's suffering. It's training through suffering. Somebody who's never, ever read a single book can be more mature and more wise if they have experiences of suffering through which they have learned about life and God. Because they have been trained because of their practice. They have discernment. They understand good and evil and the full range in between. I don't know what your lessons have been in life. I know that all of us are going through things. Many of us are sitting near people who are going through very hard and difficult and hopeless situations. There's health crisis. There's financial reversals. There are job-related issues. There's uh, loss of loved ones. There's habits and patterns and Lifetimes of struggle represented here in this room. Pick something. Pick one thing. I think about my own life story, how I was born and just feels like I was born into some early childhood trauma that I will recover from for the rest of my life. And then on top of that, I have my whole 
immigrant experience, which was very challenging growing up in the red light districts of New York City, living in roach and rat infested basements as a latchkey kid while my parents both worked. And I remember just going through middle school and high school, college, grad school, all working the whole time. Uh, to this very day, never not worked since middle school. And uh, living with parents who uh, were challenged because there was no semblance of self-care in their life and all the challenges of growing up, learning to be a pastor, experiencing financial challenges and going through relationships and health situations. Life has been hard. It's been a long, long journey. I can tell you that it is through suffering that we grow. It is through trust in God through those times of suffering. It is believing that there is an end, that there is joy on the other side. So I want you to pick something. You know, uh, anything can be an instrument for growth. For me, a, a formative thing has been marriage, going through marriage. I think that's why marriage is a commitment. It's the steel cage match of my life. I cannot get out. I am in this till death do us part. It's been hugely formative for me. Another one has been running. Running is so hard. I hate running. And yet, when I go through it, I grow. I experience it. I hate yoga right now. I hate this one teacher who makes us go in warrior two like this. And I'm standing there for so long and my thighs are burning and a cramp is coming up on my right foot. And I have this weird tightness happening in my right shoulder back area. And she's still just talking to somebody else and tweaking their pose. And the whole class is just suffering. But I've embraced it. The first two times I did yoga, I threw up in the class because it was so hot. It was hot yoga. And going through that, now it's been a full year. My yoga studio sent me a congratulations. You've made it. Email. But just little things like this, I've learned that there is great value in suffering if we have a God who is loving and truthful and powerful. I'm here to remind you that we have a God who is truth, love, and power. So we conclude uh, with this verse. says this, For every high priest, verse 1 through 10, taken from among men, can deal gently with the ignorant and the misguided, since he himself also is beset with weakness. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins. As for the people, so also for himself. And then we have Christ here. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest. How can we know that God is reliable through suffering? Because Jesus not only understands suffering himself, But he is not beset with his own weakness the way a priest is. 
Therefore, he has no conflict of interest. His entire focus and commitment is on you. His eyes are upon us to see us through the very pathway of suffering onto life that he himself already went through. This is the encouragement of Hebrews, that Jesus himself has suffered and yet without sin, meaning without distraction, without conflict of interest, he is wholly able to safely bring us through suffering. Jesus is truth and love and power, and the invitation is to trust him through suffering to embrace suffering, to not be upset at it, to not be surprised by it, but to make friends with it. So when times get hard, we don't grumble. We don't panic. Our anxiety level doesn't go up. We sort of take a deep breath and say, Lord, here we go. I am in this to the end. You are with me to the end. I don't know all of the twists and turns in this particular story, but to the end, you will be faithful. And you will grow. Let's end with this verse. Proverbs 19.21 says this, Many are the plans in a person's heart. This is true. Many are the hopes in a person's heart. That is true. Many are the thoughts in a person's heart. This is true. But it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. And this is also true. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, I know that in this room there are many troubles. I pray for your mercy and your kindness and your power at work within us as we go through suffering. And may we, in whatever situation we're in now or we'll face or, or are processing in hindsight, help us to see you in it. Help us to have hope in it. And help us to sing praise at the end of it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.